it, as you can imagine, you know, we're always, uh, you know, trying to do things that haven't been done before, and yeah. we have these tough problems, and we and we and we're problem solvers, and and it can get pretty stressful at times. And and every now and then, we have to just stop and smell the science, and, and just take a look at what what we've done. Welcome to Lives at Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school at Sidwell Friends, a pre-K to 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, I chat with Andrea Johnson Rizaghi, class of 1978. We would like to congratulate her on recently being named the director of the NASA Office of JPL Management Oversight at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. A curious explorer at heart with an engineering background, Andrea has played a significant role in many exciting NASA endeavors over the course of her career. She's worked on missions that have earned the Nobel Prize, landed an SUV-sized rover on Mars, helped to unravel the mysteries of the Big Bang, and discovered planets beyond our solar system. During the Clinton administration, the White House requested that Andrea serve as a senior policy analyst in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. In that position, Andrea coordinated the activities of the National Science and Technology Council and the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Prior to her time at NASA, she worked as a Navy contractor. Andrea has won many awards for her service to NASA and the nation and was a 2014 recipient of the Brown University Engineering Alumni Medal and the 2020 Catholic University of America Engineering Distinguished Alumni Award. So Andrea, thank you for being with us today. It's uh, great to have you back at Sidwell Friends. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I am fortunate to know your family a little bit because you've all been around the school for a long time. And and tell me tell me what it was. You're, 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 uh, all your uh, siblings are so accomplished, um, including yourself. What, what what was it like growing up in your household? What was the what was the dynamic that of expectation that was set for you and and uh, nurturing that was established for you there? Well, we're a very close knit family, and the the first thing that comes to mind is. We prioritize family dinner, oh, you know, uh, yeah. just a sense that we're going to all sit together every day, you know, no matter what, and, you know, have a home cooked meal and, uh, and, and to talk as a family. We had a, a wonderful example, you know, in our, in our parents about family life and my, my father about the strong work ethic and uh, you know, being a professional, you know. He's a dentist, right? He's a dentist, yeah. yes. And, um, and education, uh, you uh -huh. know, the value of, of, of education. You know, our, our parents were both born in, in poverty uh -huh. and uh, to see them, uh, you know, take advantage of the opportunities and make sure that, you know, that they made the best out of the opportunities they had to uh, to uplift, you know, our family yeah. and, uh, and end up in such a wonderful place. And your father worked right in the house, right? Well, the we, office. We, he did uh, at our first home in uh -huh. Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, when we lived in Northeast and we had a, a small home and his office was on the lower level. And he would actually come up for lunch. <laughs> yeah. And there was like a little buzzer. My mom, she, she needed, you know, to get his attention. She get, had a little buzzer that she could depress. But uh, he would come up for lunch and we would see that example of, um, you know, just him being always balancing family life and his professional life. And then we moved to Northwest. He kept his office in our old home. And, I see. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and um, had they been born in D.C.? Or? No. Uh, my mother's from Southern Virginia from a town called Danville. Oh, sure. Uh, she, yeah. was, she, uh, she was raised on a farm. Uh -huh. And my father is from Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how did he get back, back to the East? 
Um, so my mother um, came up to Washington, D.C. to finish her high school education. And um, my father um, went to school at, in Pennsylvania, Lincoln University. Oh, sure. And the, the story is yeah. about how he met my mom as he was coming down to Washington, D.C. He was on the basketball team for his college. And some friends wanted him to meet my mom. They, they yeah. thought she would be a good match. And uh, she came to a basketball game. And the story is there were other women there, too, who were interested in meeting my father. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and then indeed she caught his eye and he came over and gave her his hat and asked her if she would hold it while he played his game. Oh, so that's that was great. Kind of what the, a great uh, story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like of a different time. It was. I mean, they were, my mom was 16, my dad was 17, and they had a long distance uh, relationship for a bit. And and, um, and they got married when they were 20 and 21. Yeah. And my father eventually came to Washington, D.C. to go to Howard University for a dental school. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So that's how they ended up here. So um, you come to Sidwell when? when? When did you enter the I school? In seventh grade. Seventh grade. Yeah, after okay. uh, going to D.C. public schools. Okay. And were there, um, let's see, Bill would have already been here by then? He was already yeah. here. My brother Stephen was a year ahead of me. He started okay. also in seventh grade for him. And yeah. so what was the experience like at Sidwell Friends? What, what sticks out for you? Um, it, it, it was definitely an adjustment from, you know, uh, the school where I was before. Um, it was um, it's very open to, um, you know, the students' views uh -huh. and, and opinions in a way that was a little more freeing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, you know, inquiry about, you know, what the students thought about things and, you know, more open discussion. And, um, you know, the introduction of the, um, the meeting for worship, mm -hmm. um, you know, was... It was very interesting and something that definitely I've really come to value uh, in, in life to have that practice as part of the, you know, a part of the school, yeah. you know, tradition. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it was an, an adjustment and a lot of positive things that I've carried on through life. So I have the yearbook here <laughs> and um, your senior page. Right. Let's see if this prompts any memories for you here. Oh, yes. <laughs> My good friend Cheryl, yeah. and uh, yeah, I just felt like um, I did feel a certain amount of freedom. You know, we uh -huh. had this beautiful campus, and that we could uh, explore. And you know, of course, a lot of the things here made sense at the time that we wrote here about sort of our, our social life right. at the time. Lots of music there. You're a Santana fan. I oh see. yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Chick Corea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely. Uh, you know, um, there are other Earth, Wind & Fire, Jeff Beck. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, so definitely a lot of concert going back in the oh, day yeah. Yeah, and getting good. together, playing music and Sidwell parties. You know, there was definitely a social scene where we would you have you know, the house parties and yeah. just, you know, it was, it was are, fun are you time. A musician? Uh, I would not call myself a musician, but I enjoyed playing the piano. You Let's do. Put it that so way. that was part of your part of your life, part of your upbringing. Right, and and I would play here. I took lessons. Uh, yeah. I started in middle school. I would come up and you know meet with the teacher and have private lessons right here in, in the middle of my day. So I, I've always thought there's a, a lot, a lot. There are a lot of connections between music and science. Did you did you find that in terms of uh, how you uh, how you think your your patterns of thinking, your patterns of approaching problems? I would say yes. I mean, you know, music is, I took music theory here too. Oh, you did, I really yeah. enjoyed that, you know, and music is, of course, very mathematical. Right. And so that resonated uh, with me. And um, one of my hobbies as an adult was uh, teaching dance. And so, you know, it was, you know, choreography was something that I was, oh, really? you know, I used to, um, I would um, 
uh, I was a director for a, a dance troupe, and so you oh, know, that's I great. Loved here to, in DC, yeah, in the yeah. DC area, I like to choreograph and you know work with a group of dancers. And so again, it was that sort of that. Oh, I can understand the structure of the music and how. Yeah, you know. science is such a creative process, though, too, right? The the the, uh, the process of discovery. Do you find connections there as well, or? <clears throat> and um, yeah, so I one one thing I think about. Um, Discovery, you know, I love that you know that word. You know, I, I think when I think about what my job is, I say forget about what the title is. Uh, every job I've had at NASA has been about enabling scientific discovery, mm -hmm. and so much is about the unknown and trying to to fill in the blanks of what we of what we know, uh, you know, with new information. And I think one of the things that's really key about that is, um, in the, it's revising what you think you know mm -hmm. based on new information and yeah. being very curious um and so i think that you know the curiosity is uh you know a big part of that and on the engineering side you know one thing about um when you're having an engineering education and learning sort of the principles of engineering uh things seem much more concrete you know yeah. you, you know this is the equation you know you put in these factors and you get your answer but in the real world when you're doing complex uh, engineering endeavors uh, you will run into problems. You know, things don't always behave the way you predicted they were going to behave when you're doing a mm -hmm. design. And you're never, ever going to get it perfect. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things about engineering uh, is like you learn to live with um, less than perfect solutions. Mm -hmm. But if you were to try to get to the perfection, you would never, ever get anything done. You would not have the James Webb Space Telescope, yeah. you know, there, Lagrange point two, ready to you know to do its work, if you were trying to get it perfect. So you have to uh, really be creative in in your thinking and get outside of that linear. Or you know, if you just do this, you'll get the right answer. It's like no, well, let's look a little further. Yeah, let's you know see what what else might work and, and engage some of that uh, creative thinking and your problem solving. I once spoke to a scientist uh, who who told me that he counts on. Uh, 20 to 30 even more failures before he reaches something that he feels is worth pursuing in his research. And what is, I think about that with our kids often and the, the, the need for resilience, mm. um, the need to be able to learn from failure. How, what role has that played in your career? It's a very important role. And I, and I think we, we still, it's, it's an ongoing struggle to, you know, especially at NASA because we have such a, you know, we, we have such a great track record. Right. And um, amazing organization. Yeah. We, right. You. It's iconic. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, um, and we do have to. I, so I'll, I'll just tell a personal story. Um, I was the assistant director for planetary science at the time that we launched and landed the Curiosity rover. Yeah. And, you know, so I got to watch that mission. Uh, you know, getting ready for this, you know, you know, for launch. Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about the Curiosity rover, because not everybody's going to know what that is. Oh, it's so it's right, I mean, this is, yeah, right. So the Curiosity rover, um, wow, it's going on like 10 years yeah. now since it landed on Mars. But it was, you know, it was, at the time, it was the biggest rover ever, you know, landed, you know, on Mars, way bigger than like the Spirit and Opportunity that came before it. So you think about the difference in size, Spirit and Opportunity, look like a miniature golf cart kind of okay, size. Yeah. I have this like um, full size, um, full scale model in my building 
uh, it's Perseverance now, but it's very similar. That's the most recent one, but very similar design. It's Curiosity. It's like a huge Hyundai. I mean, it's yeah. just like this huge, you know, two-ton, you know, rover. And I had to use this very, um, you know, a, a system for getting it to the uh, surface that I'd never used before. Yeah. And, you know, mass is everything when you're, when you're dealing with trying to launch something off of, of Earth. You, you really have to, you know, get everything down as small as possible, but yet be able to do the job. And I, at this point, I knew all the general things that could happen. Like most people, there are a lot of general things that happen, but I also knew in detail all the little things that could happen. I knew all the problems that we had encountered that had to be uh, solved, right, yeah. in order to get it there. So what we do when we're planning for something like this, and this is a big expensive mission too, sure. is we, we have to plan for what we call a bad day, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. and we have a whole, um, you know, the comms team and everything, you know, figuring out like this, if, if this doesn't actually make it to the surface in one piece, you know, how do we, how do we, we, yeah. we talk about this? Cause we have to face the reality that failure is absolutely a possibility. You know, we do everything we can, but right. you know, you cannot guarantee it. So we, we, we were, you know, you're we modeling failure. Yeah. Yeah. We have to, yeah, we have to model the failure. We have to say, and, and before we launch, <laughs> we have to say, well, we understand the failure posture in an acceptable way. So, I mean, it's, it's always a part of our, of our conversation through the whole design process. We have a whole, you know, process of what we call fault analysis, all the possible failures that could happen and how they ripple through the system and how resilient is the system to mm -hmm. this, this failure. So, and, and sometimes things absolutely do fail and uh, it can be really, you know, really emotionally crushing for people who yeah. work on, on these, on these missions that I've been, I've been, you've been lucky so I, far. I have been very lucky. But, but there must be a kind of uh, humility that you experience when you do where you're working in, in many cases responsible for people's lives. Right? Yes. Yeah. How do you, how do you think about that? And, and what, how does that, um, how does that shape the way you approach your work? It is, and you know, it's understanding, you know, you know, first of all, we are, we are humans and, yeah. uh, and, and also there are emotions. There's some processes that we have in place that we've, that have evolved over time. And I'll, I'll start with, um, when you have these really high performing teams that do these amazing things, if you think about it, we're always doing things that have never been done before. It's a little different than, yeah. let's say if you're designing, designing cars, right? Yeah. You're and always you're, on the frontier. Yeah, yeah, we're always like, you know, we're gonna do something that's never been done before. <clears throat> so we, you know, so, so we can find things that we don't currently know. You know, we need to get the answers to questions that we don't, we don't have. And we have to say, we're gonna do, it's, it's kind of like this engineering, but it's 10 times more accurate or, and you have this accumulation of all these these new um, innovations you've got to put into uh, you know whatever you're working on to get answers to, to new questions so it's a little different than like you're designing a car yeah and you know cars are pretty much you know they they're incremental and uh, so we have these high performing teams people can have that you know you have that can do attitude which is a really important element but it also creates blind spots mm -hmm. And, uh, and somehow you think, you know, you're not going to have the same problems that everybody else has encountered whenever they try to do something that's never been done before. But it, it is a mindset that we recognize happens. And again, there's a positive side because that's how you end up doing impossible right. things because you have people who believe it. But in, in order to manage that, we have these independent teams that come in and sort of poke holes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we have to do that. We have to, we have to have these independent folks who are experts, who are not 
emotionally attached because that's part of these we're humans where we get emotional and we get attached to the work that we're doing and uh, and these are people that they respect to say you know what i think you need to have you know a redundant system there you know because there's a chance this one's going to break or mm -hmm. you need to do xyz and we take that that process very seriously yeah. and it's very um you know that i've seen that evolve over my career uh, you know from uh, my early days. And it also helps us be more predictable and how long it's gonna to take to do things and, and how much it's gonna to cost to do them. Yeah, the stakes are so high, right? From an economic standpoint and from a human standpoint. That's right, that's right. I mean, so my, you know, my most stressful day of my entire career was landing Curiosity on Mars. Um, and we call it, there's a, there's a, a phrase we use called seven minutes of terror. Because uh. seven minutes, and there's a little video if you haven't seen it, called, if you look at the Curiosity, seven minutes of terror, it's like a little seven-minute video, and it really, you hear the engineers talk about all the specific challenges that they have to address in their designs to, you know, um, manage the conditions on Mars. And seven minutes is the time it takes to get from the top of the atmosphere to the ground. And because of the transmission times for the, for the you know, the signal, you're actually going to be on the surface of Mars for seven minutes, another seven minutes, before you even know whether it's there in one piece or in multiple pieces. Yeah, wow, <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. The seven minutes of terror, so that was definitely, you know, um, I experienced that in a very visceral way, yeah. you know, and then, you know, when you get that signal that, I mean, you've probably seen the joyous. Yeah, you know, what's that feel like? Oh, it's, 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 it's a really incredible, Feeling and for and for me, I had been you know, I'd been in the senior executive position yeah. for a few years, but people on that team had spent like every day of their lives for some you know ten years or even more working on this, right? So their investment, you know, was was more than mine. I've had that experience in another uh, uh, mission, but when you see the, I, I love to show it to, to children, and they go, "Yeah, those grownups are crying." I'm like, "Yes, those grownups are, are crying. This is how so much invested. It's so much, and the emo and just you know that feeling. Yes, it actually worked. You know, is is I'm getting chills just thinking about <laughs> right right now. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a <clears throat> funny you, you mentioned another mission that was uh, important to you. What t t tell us about that? It was the uh, Earth Observing System Aura mission and it was um it's still operating it launched in 2004 but this is the one where i was in charge of building the entire what we call observatory because it's a space observatory that looks back down on earth it's uh, from a scientific point of view it's an atmospheric chemistry mission that helps us understand about climate change about air quality about the ozone layer so this is the mission that i spent seven years of my life day in and day out including a lot of time away from my children who were small mm -hmm, at the time mm -hmm. and um and and this is a you know, you know like a school bus size satellite that i knew every inch you know every mm -hmm. nook and cranny i knew every single mistake that we had encountered and solved and all the vulnerabilities and all the less than perfect solutions we had to end up launching with i mean it's, it's operated beautifully and it's definitely it was designed for five years and here we are in 2022 and it's still producing amazing data around you know the atmospheric chemistry of our of our planet but that was a pretty nerve-wracking day for me because there was always the possibility that things you know um you know Wouldn't that yeah you know, there's something could happen with the rocket which has happened i mean there was a mission around that same era um that uh, where the fairing uh, the rocket didn't open and the whole satellite ended up in the ocean mm. so these things do happen we can't be 100 percent perfect 
we, we had a good day, but I was uh, definitely worried about yeah. the possibility of a bad day and thinking, oh my God, the last seven years of my life, you know, um, you know, could have had a different uh, outcome. NASA is, I mentioned earlier, just such, such an incredible organization. And I think it has this special place uh, in the American imagination because it, it, it's, the, it's the place through which we all kind of touch the cosmos, right? Yeah. It's kind of a vicarious experience we all have with that. I can remember wake, being, having my parents wake me up in the morning to watch Neil Armstrong, or I, I think about, or, or to just to watch any number of rockets launch. Uh, right there's there's uh, iconic conversations from Houston, right, yes. and uh, uh, the Tom Hanks movie of Apollo 13, and of course no one uh, who is uh, my age could forget where they were when the Challenger happened. Right, right. right. What, what's it? What's it like to work for that organization? I mean, you've been there for a long time. What's what's what makes it run? What what special responsibilities do you feel that you carry? Oh um, wow! At a place like NASA. I mean, it's, it's just an, I'm coming up with my 37th yeah, anniversary. Yeah, I mean, right? you, you know the place. <laughs> I, it's a, it, it's, well, I will say, you know, it's a family. It really yeah, is a family. There's a sense of, I mean, you really get, uh, you know, to have that sense of family with, with, with your colleagues when you do these things together. And sometimes you sort of take it for granted. I have this expression, sometimes you got to stop and smell the uh, science, right? Yeah. And just take a yeah. step back and just take a look. At, at what we at what we do, as you can imagine, you know, we're always uh, you know trying to do things that haven't been done before, and yeah. we have these tough problems, and we and we and we're problem solvers, and and it can get pretty stressful at times, and and every now and then, and we have to just stop and smell the science, and, and just take a look at what what we've done, to look at how textbooks have been rewritten based on the data that we have yeah. collected and the discoveries uh, that we have made in in, in our endeavors. You're talking too a little bit about um, the position you had overseeing the astrophysics at NASA. Um, what what and, and the big questions. What what are some of those? Oh, you know, that, that was just an, such an amazing uh, you know job. I, I love my job description. Yeah. Because it was really okay. Your job description is discover how the universe began, discover how the night sky that we see you know came to be, and sort of what's happening. Uh, right now, and then the biggest question is: Are we alone in the universe? This is yeah. literally part of yeah. part of my job description, and it's very humbling, uh, you know, to just to have that work and to be working with people who um, fundamentally have very open minds who mm -hmm. know that they don't know everything. So some people will joke, "Oh, you work with the the, the smartest people." But I don't think pe people who are doing this work really think of it that way. They think it's like there's so much because they're they're quest is for the things they don't know mm. you know let's figure out what we don't know or what we need to know better and let's be willing to revise what we think we know based on on new information this you know continual curiosity and quest for uh, discovery so these are scientific questions but it right. seems like they're also deeply spiritual questions as well that that's right that's right you know and one thing i um when i give talks you know i talk about I usually break down the, the acronym of NASA. You know, one of the things that's like, we are a national, the N and the administration. So we are a federal agency, yeah. an independent federal agency. But what we do is not just on behalf of the US government. It's not just on behalf of US scientists. And indeed, uh, you know, virtually, you know, all of our endeavors are international. We, we actually engage the international scientific community. And we look at the work we do on behalf of, of humanity. 
So even though we, we may be a, uh, you know, uh, an agency in a, in a federal system, uh, we, we definitely see our work being on behalf of, of all humanity. Mm -hmm. and, we, and, we, and we want to spread um, our data, you know, worldwide and, and help, uh, mm -hmm. you know, everyone um, be a part of uh, the discoveries that we make. What's the biggest learning you took from that position about the universe while you were there? Oh wow! Uh, I would say how big the universe. <laughs> you know, we, we, you, you know, it's, it's you know, I think it, if I put it in human terms, that I think it's pretty amazing that we humans, if you look at the grand scheme of things, you know, over 13 billion years since the Big Bang, right? These, this is a a time scale that is so large compared to our human existence but the fact that we've been able to place ourselves in that context is, is pretty amazing and then if you think about you know 100 billion stars in the milky way galaxy alone and and when i was in my position in astrophysics that there was a finding uh, from data from the hubble space telescope that there could be as many as two trillion galaxies and so if you just think about that math, mm -hmm. you know, roughly say 100 billion stars in a galaxy, 2 trillion galaxies, that's a lot of stars. Another big area of discovery <laughs> in astrophysics has been the search for planets and other star systems. That was, that was one of the programs in astrophysics is yeah. exoplanet exploration. And from the uh, Kepler mission, we know now that every star you see in the night sky has at least one uh, planet and likely more. And we have confirmed, mm. I think that I have a little counter in my building and, and, yeah, amazing. and you know, it, just looking at one little tiny slice of our Milky Way, yeah. we've, you know, you know, we have confirmed over 5,000, um, and again, this is a little slice, 5,000 confirmed planets, but we can extrapolate that and think about how many planets there are in our universe. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. And it makes you think about our significance and all of that. That's so humbling. I find <laughs> I find it very humbling. Yeah. It's a very humbling experience to think about sort of where we sit in this vastness of time and space, and the, and what that means as far as the possibilities. Um, that's what's what's out there. That we're just, you know, you know, just getting to the tip of the iceberg and understanding what's out there. So you mentioned that one of the questions that you were charged with exploring was, are we alone in the universe? Right. What, 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 what insights could you give us about that? What, what insights could you offer us? You know, we certainly have not, uh, you know, found any evidence of any extraterrestrial, you know, technology or, or life. And, and certainly that's something that we'd be interested in. But where we are, we're looking is farther out. I mean, some of the places yeah. where we are thinking about the possibility of life, we're looking... Um, in our own solar system. And when we think about that, we're, we're probably thinking about maybe not complex life, like you right. know, what might've been ancient microbial life on, on Mars is yeah, still right. a question that we're examining. We're looking at um, the moon Europa around Jupiter as having what we call biological potential. It's got this huge you know, ice shell around it. Uh, it has more water on it than, than Earth. Uh, there's evidence of an under the ice ocean and, uh, and based on our remote um, sensing, uh, we could we can see some of the chemical composition. So, you know, it's an area that we have a lot of interest in that could have biological biological potential. Another one is uh, Enceladus, a little moon around Saturn that sort of makes the E ring. Uh, you know, it's the brightest object in our solar system, 
and uh, also has a, an icy shell and you know internal heating that could have you know, liquid water in that surface. So there are some really fascinating targets that we're looking at in our own solar system that we can get a closer look at. I actually, I led a study on, 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 uh, on what it would take to do a mission to Enceladus several years ago. Yeah, so wow. That's very compelling. And then of course, exoplanets, you know, trying to look at these um, planets that we're finding outside of our solar system and, and see if we can collect more data to see if there's any evidence of anything that could be non-natural processes. So mm -hmm. this is a big, big question. We have a field uh, that we uh, do uh, a field of study um, in planetary science called astrobiology. So how do you study life that didn't evolve on Earth? Because we yeah. don't have any evidence of it. So we right. try to look at all the, what, I mean, the question of how do you detect life? How do you detect life as we know it? You know, how do you send your sensors and be able to find life as we know it? That's a big question. So we look at extremophiles here on Earth. You know, One thing we have found is our definition of habitability just keeps expanding. Mm, we used to think that, that water was rare and every place we've looked in the solar system, we have found water. We found, you know, um, uh, water on our moon, water, you know, in pockets of mercury, you know, so close to the mm. sun. So that was what, you know, that's for life as we know it, that's essential. So we find, we used to think water was kind of rare. We find it's abundant. We, we have evidence that there was big bodies of water on Mars. You know, we have features that we clearly recognize when we compare them to Earth of, of deltas and, you know, big lake beds. And that's what we're exploring with our with our rovers. So we are finding that life is robust and, and habit, the habitability for life is broader than we, we probably originally thought. Such intricate questions, uh, important questions. And our culture in many ways, uh, certainly over the last 10 years has has in, it turned its back on science in some ways, right? Um, at least in, in the political, around political discourse. Um, there's, a, there's an anti-scientific uh, bias. We, we've seen this with the pandemic. Uh, what, how do you think about that as a scientist and, and how do you address that? Well, one thing I think is really important is um, making science accessible, you know, to the general public, that you don't have to be a scientist to, yeah. to understand things. You're very good at it, by the way. Oh, right? <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. So part of it is, right, right, it's the, you have, uh, not only are you a brilliant engineer, but you're also able to communicate extraordinarily well about it, right? That makes a big difference. Well, well thank you very much for that. I, I think it's really important. It's something at NASA we have been really working, yeah. working on. And I'll tell a, a little story about that. Um, so I was working on a mission concept. It was, a, it was a, a mission to look at the state of vegetation on on, on Earth, and um, and you know when you get a lot of scientists together, they can you know they can go right to talking about you know the uh, the chemical compositions and the particular yeah. things that they're trying to measure. And I had learned a lesson from the Aura mission, where we were trying to communicate to the public what we're what we're doing, yeah. right? And, uh, and uh, it gave the, the scientists a lot of discomfort when we came down to it. This is th three simple messages, which I, I talked about earlier. This mission is about ozone layer, air quality, and what's happening with our, with our climate, right? A lot of scientists, oh, well, that makes it sound simple. I said, but for the average person, they can understand it what works. that means and why it's important to yeah. them. And so when I started talking to people like that, I would get this response 
I didn't know NASA did that, and I'm glad my tax dollars are being spent yeah, that interesting. way. Right? Yeah. So then I'm working on this, so fast forward, I'm working on this concept, and I'm sort of internalizing this lesson about how you have to be able to communicate to people. And I'm working in this little room with uh, with scientists trying to form, this is at the very early stages, what does our mission look like, you know, you know, sort of uh, how big does a spacecraft to be and how much fuel, blah, blah, blah. So I had a friend visiting who was a filmmaker, and she's not a scientist, you know, and she had her education in humanities. And she wanted to come visit and sort of see things at work. I said, I want to bring you into this room with my scientists. And I brought her in. I said, here's my friend, average American citizen. You tell her why her tax dollars should be spent on this mission. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, just that, pra you know, trying to get that practice of, yeah. you know, talking to regular people about what about what you're doing. I think that's that's really important. And so I also encourage people to talk to their neighbors and sort of get, get past the... Um, you know, what could be the uh, the sound bites and sort of yeah. the, the quick things that people go to when they want to get into this debated, you know, uh, get into a debate about something. Let's just say, you know, what's important, um, you know, to, to people, what's important to their lives, you know, and also what they're curious about, you know. Yeah. And sometimes you sort of take them that, that road, they can sort of get past um, some of those more divisive um Elements. How, how do, does, do scientists, are, and, and NASA's in an interesting position because you're part of the federal government, right? But there, there's, um, there's a propensity uh, not to trust science, uh, right? Among, among some Americans, right? Yeah. Among a certain group of Americans. And, and some people would even say um, that there is a kind of um, anti-intellectualism around that. I mean, historians have written about that for years, um, about America um, having a, uh, an anti-intellectual streak, right? It kind of the pull yourself up by the bootstraps nation of frontiersmen and women who, uh, you know, settled this continent, right? And there's a whole lot of polit politics that are, that are um, omitted from that, right? That, that particular statement. But, but there is a sense that, um, we're much more skeptical of science. We're more skeptical or more reluctant to pursue truth. Yeah, so I, I'm recalling a conversation um, uh, I had in Hawaii with mm -hmm. a, a native Hawaiian man who was giving us a tour around the island. And, um, and he was expressing some skepticism, you know, about, about scientists and, and so, yeah. Um, you know, we were with him the whole day and we were having some chats and he was telling us all these, you know, these stories about sort of native Hawaiians and, um, some of their practices. And so for instance, he was talking about, you know, a guy who would go out in a particular place and watch the water to see when's the right condition. I said, you know, he's doing scientific observations. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and little by little we're having these conversations and, and, uh, and, and making it real. And he, and at the end of the day, he, he was like, you know what? I have a very different thought about you know this. You know, because I always thought of the scientists as the mad scientists with the beakers. You know, uh, yeah, and the, right, and right, 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 right. And um, you know, and he was, you know, he was thanking me for helping him realize that 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 you know science that you know what he was describing were scientific observations and how they were using that information to make decisions, and uh, and then you know, to trying to make it real for people in their day-to-day -day lives, yeah. working with farmers and saying, you know, that there are a lot of farmers who use our data 
to help make decisions about planting and you know sure. and, and irrigation. So I think making those connections to people's real lives is really important, and, and, the, and the communication. I think that's a job that we have. And I, I would also say because one of the things that I um, I, I do is I, I serve on the engineering advisory council at Brown University, and uh, and one thing I've observed is um, when it comes to STEM um, graduate, you know, mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's filled with international students. We don't have enough, mm -hmm. um, you know, natural born Americans, I think, who are pursuing um, advanced degrees. And I think this is something would be a good uh, a focus um, to try to increase the numbers of, uh, you know, it starts early, planting the seed, yeah. this is something, and, and also making that kind of education accessible yes. to people where they can uh, actually af afford it and, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, this is a great segue into um, uh, something else I wanted to talk about, um, and, and it is about education. Um, uh, did, did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? I mean, you have many talents. You're like, you're a choreographer, <laughs> you're playing the piano, uh, you know, uh, did you always know this is what you wanted to do? How did you, how did you arrive here? What were the key steps? Oh, so I, I, when you? I think back on this question, um, uh, I, this is something that I, um, I I didn't really think about and reflect on until much later on when I started running yeah. into uh, to women who had a different experience than I did. So right. my experience, I feel like very fortunate in my experience because you know when I showed up as an engineer, I didn't look like the other engineers, right. Right? right? And and then I was like, I didn't really notice for a long time that I was kind of you know different than my peers. But I go back to I'll start with in third grade. I'd mentioned earlier that you know my family was originally uh, we were in Northeast DC right. and we moved to Northwest. We we my parents got this real fixer upper of a house, and my dad was a real do it yourselfer. He liked to work with his hands, and uh, he had this workroom. You know, this idea of this, this work room I thought was yeah. fascinating. Start buying, you know, power tools. It's a lab. Could, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I, was, I was in third grade at the time. Yeah. And um, I was so fascinated with these power tools that I would just go home from school and just go down there and just try to figure stuff out. And, uh, you know, I was trying to use them. And, you know, and I had these two big brothers, right? I'm the first girl. You know, it was the time that it was, yes. you know, uh, and uh, and I said one of the most important things that my dad did was never blink. He never said girls don't play with power tools. Yeah. He never said what I was doing was strange or special. He didn't blink. He says, OK, let me show you. Let's let's do this. Let's show you how to use these things safely. And uh, and always supported me, encouraged me. And, and I didn't think I was doing anything any differently than you know just you know anything that was uh, unusual and indeed we worked together you know you know our entire adult lives on projects together which is yeah. always very satisfying and then i fast forward to when i was here at sidwell and uh, you know i definitely gravitated towards the uh, you know the ap calculus and the physics, physics class i, I love those classes and uh, the college advisor at the time uh, mr k hart who i remember very fondly uh you know i had my my consultation with him and he was you know trying to help me figure out what I might want to major in and and, and uh, what colleges to sort of look at and he says oh so what do you like and I'm like well I really like physics and calculus and he says well you should think about engineering and I'm like oh okay I didn't know any engineers <laughs> and I think you know he did me a great favor by not 
planting this idea that this was, again, anything strange or unusual. He yeah. never said, oh, by the way, you might be the only girl in your class, which indeed turned out to be the case by the time I got to my junior year yeah. in college. So I think my, between my dad and Mr. Kahart, they gave me this wonderful start because they didn't give me the baggage of yeah. I'm doing something unusual. And I, 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 I was kind of blissfully ignorant for a while that I was doing something that was different. And I yeah, think it right. served me well. Right. And you, uh, so I have a daughter who is studying to be a biologist. Um, and, and you mentioned that other women have not seen things or not experienced things necessarily the way you have. Uh, what, what, it, what do we do about that? What, what is the way to encourage more women to enter the sciences, more people of color to enter the sciences? What, what can we do as, as an educational institution? Uh, what can we do as parents to help encourage uh, people to go into these fields. Yeah, so you know, I think it is with again the the, the not the not blinking. If you see, you know, I think right. it's, got, it's definitely gotten better. You know, because definitely by the time sure, I, you know, I came along, I was running into women who some women who just dropped out, and then others who would you know that they've been actively discouraged. The part of that is. Um, is not making a big deal of it. I think, you know, there's one, right. you know, and also not making it too special. I think sometimes that could be a burden too, if you're thinking you're doing something so, you know, phenomenal. Too heavy to carry it's, that. Yeah, it can be heavy. So I think, you know, support, but not the, you know, you know, going overboard. With, Almost oh my, matter of fact. Yeah, matter right, of fact. Right, it it like, oh, she's playing, she's doing power tools. Right, well, of yeah. She's interested in that. Exactly. That's a great thing. Exactly. Just let her do it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things my dad did so yeah. well is, you know, I think with, with education in, in, in general, just sort of like, you know, he would have this expression, oh, yeah, you, know, you got a good grade. You did what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right. That's <laughs> it. It's expected of you to do that. It's expected. Yeah. yeah. So if you just have that, exp you know, expected and just, you know, okay, that's great. Yeah. What, one of the things that I, um, I, I try to be very conscious about, especially with little girls, um, is because, you know, still this world uh, that we're in, the social signals put a lot of focus on what girls look like. Yeah, it's so pervasive. How they dress, you know. Yeah. And social um, media has only reinforced oh, that. Oh, I know. I think it's, and right. I think we were making some strides, and I think social media sort of set us back right. in, in that respect. So when I encounter um, little girls, even if they're really dolled up, I try not to let my first reaction be how they look. Mm -hmm. So I try to go for, tell me what you're interested in. You know, you know, what's your favorite subject in school? You know, and, and, and starting at an early age, those messages we send to girls that you are a lot more than what you look like, mm -hmm. that, you know, what you think is important, you know, what, what your views are, mm -hmm. what you're interested in, and try to get that, you know, try to, and the simple things you can do when, when, when they're, mm -hmm when they're little. And another thing is, and I ran into this um, at a math festival where I gave a talk and I was talking to young girls. And, you know, of course the theme was math. So I, yeah, I tended to start with the question, oh, so, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's your experience like with math, you know, and, you know, what math are you studying in school? And I, I uh, had this little girl say to me, well, math is so hard. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. And it's so satisfying when you get to the answer and all of a sudden her face changed. And I felt like she didn't have permission right. to do hard things. And I'm like, you know, why should boys be the only ones that get to do hard yeah. things? You know, the, 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 there are all these social messages out there. I think we have to just stay on top of, and there's little things, but you know, but I mean, they're, they're, they're big, you know, because uh, they're, they're, I think they're omnipresent, but I think we still need to work on that. I mean, I think a place like Sidwell, you do a good job at that, but, um, 
you know, the, uh, the culture is, 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 is there. Yeah, the cu- it's so heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. And, and, uh, you have to be so intentional about it. And, and, you know, we're always looking for ways to improve in that. That's why I asked the question because, um, is there, is there anything that was, that was done right? So you, you had people who were, um, who treated this this interest as normal, if you will, right? right. So that so that it wasn't said, well, girls don't do that, right? right? Which is which is the message that comes um, often implicitly and sometimes explicitly, right? right? So no one gave you explicit uh, discouragement, right. or at least they didn't. Are, are there people? Or was there a kind of encouraging that you found um, especially helpful to you in your career? Yeah. So when I when I started at Goddard, I was the only woman in this group of 50 engineers. And, uh, you know, I, I tell the story. I, I wish I had the, the photographic evidence, but the restroom I used said woman. Yeah, W-O-M-A-N. Yeah. One woman. Yeah. And, and, and there were two stalls in there, you? so, yeah. you know, but, and, but you know, I, I remember thinking it was just so odd. And, of course, we didn't have phones with uh, with uh, cameras on it, because certainly I would have gotten right. a picture of that. But, um and there were only two other people of color. Um, yeah. you know, as a guy from India and a guy from Guyana in this group. But I think uh, what helped me is, uh, first of all, you know, they hired me. Right. <laughs> you know? And um, I had a good mentor. I was assigned to somebody who was going to, you know, sort of take me under his wing and sort of show me the ropes. Yeah. And he also didn't really. I don't think he ever felt like, oh, I got saddled with a woman. Yeah, you know, right. which I think some, you know, some people could have had. He was really a great you know, mentor. He really looked after me. He encouraged me to write papers and showed me the robes and we got to know each other. And I think that was really important is like, you know, it's really getting to know people. And, um, you know, and also, you know, I gave, you know, them a little bit of education about a couple of things because it was, you know, it was, it was a different time. Right. And, um, you know, if were, I would go to the machine shop in the morning. I was a mechanical engineer. So I'd have to get things made in a machine shop and I'd go down into these spaces that had pinups on the wall. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. that was before we had uh, laws in place about what right. the place should look like. That was this part of the landscape. They weren't used to having a woman <laughs> right. running around in their spaces. Yeah. Right. But I think I demystified for them, you know, all of a sudden I think, okay, you know, I had to jump through some hoops for some people who didn't, you know, think that I was competent because I shouldn't be there. You know, I had a couple of experiences like that, but you know, I soon, you know, proved them, you know, wrong. And, uh, you know, and, you know, it's so a little by little, I, you know, sort of win people over and get, uh, you know, uh, sort of put some cracks in their mindsets about mm-hmm. what it meant to have women, you know, in, in their, uh, in their group. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, I have people help me and I help some of them, I think, <laughs> Yeah. you know, in their evolution. We spent a lot of time talking about NASA. 37 years is a while, right? Um, but you did take a little sojourn to work uh, for the White House. Yes, yes. What did you, what were the projects there and, and what did you learn from that experience? Oh, wow. That was a very interesting experience. So I had to use completely different types of skills. I had to figure out different, you know, how to do things differently. So I, I worked in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, you know, uh, which is led by the, you know, the, um, the president's advisor on, the, on those topics. And um, I was working on a, a portfolio. As I, my primary job was the National Science Technology Council, which looks at all of the science technology across the federal government. 
Mm. You know, at the time, there were 23 departments and agencies that had some part of their portfolio that had to do with science technology. And yeah. the idea was to get um, the, the agencies to work together on, on certain topics. And I'll, I, I sort of give this example. Uh, there, there are nine different committees, and to look at a particular problem could have multiple angles. So um, one that sticks out is emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. Of course, we can think about that a lot yes, now right. because of what we've just gone <laughs> through, right? So, you know, at first thought you would go, okay, emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, that sounds clearly like health and human services. But then there is a um, national security aspect to that. Sure, yeah. There is a, uh, a wildlife Mm-hmm. you know, and fisheries and, you know, aspect to that. Very interdisciplinary problem. Exactly. So it's like taking the expertise across the federal government and looking at a problem from all these facets to make sure that as we develop policy, we're looking at all the angles and all the possible things that could, could uh, you know, come to effect and, to, and have the talent across the different agencies talking to each other and, and forming policy. I, I found as a citizen... I learned so much about how our government works because, you know, being right up there in the White House mm-hmm. and, and really learning how the president gets advice and how national policy is set. And, um, and just um, also what a tiny part of NASA is of the whole federal government, you know, just a little teeny, you know, half, yeah. of, a, half of a penny, you know, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the discretionary budget. So, um, you know, the, how, how the State of the Union addresses is created. And, the, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was just really interesting to get a front seat to that. And so, I, I, again, I learned a lot as a citizen that I didn't really realize before. Very stressful environment, though. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. But, you I mean, you're used to working in stressful environments. Although that's, in a way, maybe more immediate. It's a different kind of stress. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the stress I think I felt like in the work at NASA is, is more the, um, the anticipation of, is it going to work and are we solving problems? And there's just, you know, you, there's a, um, you know, you get, you get something, you know, get something really concrete yeah. <laughs> from your, from your stress, you know, uh, this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a little less tangible. The reward wasn't so yeah, immediate for results. the stress. <laughs> And it wasn't all, I mean, and it wasn't always a, um, a, a an easy uh, uh, presidency. Right. Yeah. And it's just like the, just that environment where things had to be, the way I would, I would think, when I think back on that, you know, experience, it's like you're, you're preparing material that had to be signed by the president, the vice president, or the senior advisor of science technology. Yeah. So, uh, and they're going to be very public things and they had to be perfect. So this, you know, this. And, 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 and there also often wasn't enough time, you know, you felt like you, you had to pull together all this, you know, material, you know, you're working with these amazing people. I mean, one, one of the things I was also working on was the President's Committee of Advisors and Science Technologists. So these are the non-governmental people and they're like two Nobel laureates, you know, yeah. on this yeah. group. And so you were working with all these great minds and getting these, you know, this information pulled together, but there was always this, this you know, tight di- deadlines, this uh, expectation of things being being perfect and an environment where um, everybody is on, you know, um, adrenaline and um, and no like no downtime, no levity. I was like every yeah. inter- encounter you had with people was serious. Whether you were running to the elevator in the hallway in the gym, the standing in line to get your sandwich at the lunch place, you know, 
And, um, you know, Ernie Moniz, uh, who was, um, he was Obama's uh, uh, Secretary of Energy. Yeah. He was, he was there at the time uh, in, in the OSTP and he was in charge of science. And he started a meeting with a joke. And it was, I'll never forget that joke. I'm not going to say it now because yeah. it's a corny joke, but yeah. it was the only levity I can remember. My, that's amazing. It. But it was like, <clears throat> I was, and he was such a great guy. It's like, oh my God, he actually had us laugh before starting a meeting. Yeah. And it, it was so memorable because it was so, it stood out in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, learning a lot as a citizen there. A citizen is one of the many hats you wear. Yeah. Scientist. Talked about uh, earlier when we first met. We were talking about being a mom and a, a spouse. And uh, what what worries you most as a scientist and citizen and all the various hats that you wear? How do you when you think about where our country is today? What worries you? I I do worry about what we talked about before about this um, people not understanding and not trusting science. Um, it, it, I, you know, in, my, in the course of my career, um, you know, I saw you know, starting with like it's climate change, you know, what I thought were just basic scientific, you know, discussions turn into political hot topics. And, um, so I, I think that it's just a shame that, um, things that I, in my view, that should not be political have become right. a political, uh, so that, that is concern. And I think, um. And, and there, as you know, there are um, movements to, um, you know, minimize and uh, the kind of education. But I think this is a real need. Uh, you know, I think if you, have, uh, you know, for this country, uh, I think it's really important for ch for children to see themselves as little scientists when they're playing in the dirt. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being curious about why the bark is peeling off the tree or you know whatever to understand that what they're doing is engaging in scientific you know, curiosity and exploration. And um, so I think we do have a need for, um, you know, making scientific thinking, you know, more accessible yeah. to people and, 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 uh, and to keep scientific education uh, strong. So as a citizen, I think that's really important. I think we need a scientifically um, literate citizenry, you know, yeah. for, for, for everyone. You know, we need science to solve vexing problems that, um, that, that, that we face. And, uh, and I think we need education, especially higher education to be more accessible in every way, you know, yeah. you know, financially and, uh, and intellectually. Right. Right. There, our, our kids worry about it. Our students worry about climate change. Um, and, and they carry so much right now. Uh, they carry something. I mean, here we are a week after uh, the mass shooting uh, in yeah. Day. There was another um, shooting in Tulsa yesterday. Yes. Uh, our students uh, carry this with them. Uh, they carry uh, Ukraine with them yes. and, and uh, the nuclear threat uh, that has been revived around Ukraine, right? right. We thought we had kind of put that away. Um, uh, they carry with them the uh, specter of climate change and the worry uh, that all the work that they do may come to no fruition at all because they worry that we might not have a world to live in. No, no. What do you What do you say to uh, to um, younger people about that? How do we encourage them? What is the message that we can give them? 
tune out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> One thing yeah. is like, I, I, I think the messages out there are, um, you know, that there's a lot more hope than you would think when, if you just listen to, you know, the loudness of social media, you know, and, uh, and, and, and trying to find maybe the, the, the simple joys and pleasures that they can have with their, their friends. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us would do better to, you know, to sort of turn off, you know, the, the, the drumbeat of the negativity and maybe see that, that the world is not as negative mm-hmm. as, you know, all of that might make mm-hmm. you, make you think just to try to find the, the wonder in, um, in the things you see every day, you know, um, and again, engage in that scientific mind of, of curiosity mm-hmm. and, uh, and the satisfaction as you, um, I think about uh, the wonders and the wonderful wonders of the world and mm-hmm. the universe that we do live in. We got to we got to have we got to be intentional to sort of shift our focus a bit away from the negatives and, and try to find yeah. those positive things. Yeah, I mean, Quakers might say um, to focus on simplicity, right? You got to focus yeah. on what matters so that your energies aren't squandered. What what makes us most human? Absolutely. What makes us uh, uh, most connected to one another? All right. Hope and opportunity, you just mentioned, um, inspiration. You're certainly an inspi- very inspiring person. Where, where do you find your inspiration and, and hope and, and opportunity? Where, where does that live for you? Well, I, I, I do t- take stock of the beautiful world that we live in. Of course, and that comes with the responsibility of, 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 of trying to keep it, you know, keep it, you know. Um, and so where I live in California... I see the sunset almost every single day. You know, it's either, you know, from my vantage point, either on the ocean or on the, you know, Santa Monica mountains and just stop, you know, like I, 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 like, I feel like I have no excuse, but just to go out there and just watch this every day and just take in, it's a little different every day and it's beautiful every day. You know, even on the cloudy days, you know, where you see just the little beams of light and so I, I take inspiration from that. It's just a reminder, you know, that, uh, um, you know, we're part of this big system. And uh, you know, just to you know, watch that sunset, it's like, yep, it's reliable every day. I can mm. come out here. I'm going to be able to see it. It's going to be majestic. It's going to be unique. And, uh, you know, be able to take that, that breath in and, uh, you know, be, be happy and grateful that, mm that I'm here and, uh, and I'm fortunate to have a good life and, uh, and not to take that for granted. Yeah. Thank you. We're very grateful that you've been here today. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me. It's been a great. pleasure. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you.